Hey there, welcome back to the Trista for Governator show and we're going to listen to a Midas Touch Network Patreon special event that's only accessible to me because I'm a producer. I cover all the pro-democracy podcasts in my podcasts and I'm hot on the trail of Trump going to jail. I also cover ancient history and do daily ASMRs so thank you for a billion subscribers across social media. This is called Democratic Strategist Reveals Shocking New Election Data That Debunks Media Narrative Patreon Exclusive Early Access. Special video. Well, let's hope this is good news. Hi, Ben. How you doing, Ben? And welcome to this edition of The Mighty. This is Ben Micellis, joined by Brett and Jordy Micellis. We will be breaking down on this episode. What is the early voting data looking like? What is the landscape heading in? Midterms. There's no one better to talk to us about that than Simon Rosenberg, president of the NDN, longtime Democratic strategist. This is his 17th election cycle, and he worked as a strategist for the DCCC in 2018, crafting a very successful campaign there. Simon, welcome to the Midas Touch podcast. Great to be here, and just thanks for all that you guys do. It's pretty amazing to watch from the outside. Well, we're happy to have you here. We've been watching you from the outside because one of the things we're focused here is the data. And you are, like us, obsessed with the data. What is the data reflecting an early voting turnout? And so I want to explore what that data is. But the first thing that I want to talk about, too, because we had been discussing this amongst the brothers. We were saying, where are all of these polls that I almost never heard of, like coming from out of nowhere, you know, showing all these Republican leads and kind of out of nowhere, I just saw this flood of it, and you had analyzed that, and, and others had analyzed it too, Tom Bonnier and some others, you know, and said, there may be something going on here, and actually there is something going on here, can you explain that? Yeah, and, and this is, you know, it's sort of a, a tragedy in some ways, and it's oh, a reflection shit. of just the how illiberal and anti-democratic the Republican Party has become, which is that they, there's clearly a, a purposeful campaign to try to gain the polling averages and to create an impression that there's a red wave. As I said, I've, as you said, I've been doing this for 17 election cycles, and so I've seen it all, uh, you know, in terms of what Republicans do. So what they're doing now with the polling averages and, and is only in seven states, by the way. It's not universal. There's a seven-state concentrated effort to gain the polling averages, and also I think it's beginning to kick in on national uh, numbers too. I mean, they've dropped six national tracks in the last two days uh, of polling, and um, in the states, you know, you, what you're seeing is just literally a torrent, a flood of these kind of obscure polling outfits dropping polls in the states that they don't have any traditional uh, experience in. And now, in seven of the battleground states, more than half of the polls taken in October are from Republican terms or Republican organizations, which means that the averages now have been corrupted and polluted, and we can't really trust any, either on 538 or real clear politics, any of the state averages. I'm worried that it's beginning to happen with the national average, too. But it's just, it's just like, you know, and look, what, what does it mean? It means that they're not confident of winning. 
I mean, if they have to spend millions of dollars trying to persuade everybody that the election is better than it is, you only do that if you're not winning. And so this is a sign of desperation to me in some ways. Um, but it's had an impact. I mean, we all know it's had an impact, right? I mean, there's, there's been several weeks of kind of, we've been dealing with it, people are kind of down. I think the election's slipping away from us. We've had all those headlines. A lot of this has been manufactured. It may end up being true. It just isn't true in all, it, not all the data is pointing in the same direction. That's probably what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, let's talk about the direction that the data is pointing in. Because if the data is pointing in a bad direction, we would be the first to say here yeah. on the Midas Touch Network and on our Twitter account, hey, here's what's happening. The sky is truly falling down. We need this. It's going to be a disaster. Like, we would yeah. message that because we tell the truth, and that's what we want to do. But the data is actually reflecting something different. And so, yeah. what's the picture of the data high level? Sure. And then let's maybe try to get into the weeds a little yeah. bit state by state. Sure. I think, And I think people should be encouraged by what we're saying. Right? If not, we are not out of the woods here. <laughs> this is an unbelievably close election. Everything that everybody does between now and election day matters, particularly voting early. That's really important. But let me just say that the most important data we now have is early vote data. And we have to recognize that because of the way our elections have changed, it's still kind of a new thing that we have this much data in this many states this early, right? This is kind of still a, in the analytical data world, this is kind of a new, a new thing. And I don't think it's actually become integrated into sort of the data uh, pundits uh, yet because it's kind of still a new baby, right? So what we're seeing in the early votes, because really to me the greatest question about the, the general election was would this overperformance that we saw in the five House specials after jobs ended and in Kansas, would it carry over to the general election? Would this energy that we saw be overperformed in the five House specials in various different parts of the country, right? Alaska, New York, Nebraska, by seven points over our 2020 numbers. It was really impressive. Nobody thought we were going to win New York 19. Our own polling had us down three to four points, and we won by two and a half points, right? So the question to me always was, would this energy carry over to the general? And so far, it looks like it is. Maybe not as high as we want, but certainly we're not down at all, which is sort of the general view. When you look at the uh, Target Smart Data, which is the best early vote site, Tom, Tom Bonnier, who you mentioned earlier, um, there is, we are up in virtually every battleground over our 2020 numbers. And in some of the states, we're up by a substantial margin. I have the list here. Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, uh, we are up by double digits in those states over where we were in 2020. And that's an amazingly good sign. And in some of these states, we're hundreds of thousands of votes ahead of where we were in 2018. At a national level, at this point in 2018, the last midterm, the Republicans had about a 400,000 vote advantage over us. Today, we have a 2.6 million vote advantage over them. So part of this is that our party now has really embraced the early vote. The Republicans used to embrace the early vote until Trump, right? And now we're embracing it and we're building these grassroots campaigns that can take our prime voters, our most active voters, getting them vote early, and then we can use the final week of the election to moving into turning out more lower propensity voters, um, which will create, you know, increased Democratic turnout. So this, this is what I think a lot of commentators, you often hear people say, well, is this cannibalizing the election day vote? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. And anyone who says that has never worked in a campaign. What it's doing is by you voting early and all these people voting early, it's going to create more Democrats. It allows 
our heavily funded campaigns that are coming out, lower powder. propensity voters powder. today as opposed to 2000. I should have saved the bag for you. Actually, it's still around here somewhere. The um, the Republicans are skewing the the. So the, I'm uh, incredibly encouraged by the early vote data. It sort of confounds some of the polling that we're seeing that's showing yeah. kind of a shift to the Republicans. Because most of the polar polling um, groups polar. are Republicans. Yeah, pollers, pollsters are Republican, and Polster. they're they're from Republicans. They're doing Republican states. The same Republican states, seven of them. So, um, but actually, the numbers are way up. On, um, I heard women re breaking records of signing up to vote. You know, women are pissed off. Thank you, women. Come on, let's do it. Got half the population. Everybody get to the goddamn polls. And, um, yeah, so it's an exclusive. So we're not seeing that in the early vote data. And so I think to me that's the most encouraging data that we have. And it, and it by the way, it's consistent across states, and it's consistent on day-to-day, -day, which is really important. You're not seeing huge variances, right, which is a sign of the data being choppy. Is there... Do you ever uh, ride your bike down Irvington? Oh, okay. Um, could then, uh, if you do, well, next time you're doing that during the day, uh, could you pick me up some chick starters <laughs> at the uh, Ajo Feeds? Chick Staza. Like five bucks worth of chick Staza. It's, it's a. That's an Ajo. Yeah. Uh, well. One road over. Mm -hmm. One road over. Right. One road over, and they all said, "Chick starter." I think I'm just, I'm gonna have a, some more chickies pretty soon too. Having lots of babies, and now that the bobcats called out my large birds. Hope you enjoyed your turkey dinners, motherfucker. <laughs> Got my turkey turkey butts hearts. Still beating hearts. Fucking Aztec. Fucking Aztec Bobcat. Across time, across geography, and, and over time, and so maybe you can also let our listeners and viewers know, you know, what happened in 2018, what happened in 2020, and why is it so um, impressive that the numbers in 2022 for a midterm versus, say, a general, or a midterm compared to a general, is yeah. where it is now. So we're using, for comparison, we're using 2020 because because 2020 was the election where Republicans started walking away from early vote. And so it's really the fairest comparison. 
And we won that election by four and a half points nationally, right? So if we're, and in, and in places like, let me give you an example. I mean, in Pennsylvania, let me just use my data here. In Pennsylvania, we're doing 12 points better than we did in 2020. Well, we wow. only won 2020, you know, by one, you know, one point, right? And and what that would mean is, what would that translate into? So for doing about, you know, which means we're doing like five hopefully. points better, you know, in the in polling. Well, if you look at the New York Times poll uh, that just came out about Pennsylvania, Fetterman's up by five points. That's basically the same data, right? If we're five points ahead in the polling, we'd be about ten points ahead in the early vote. So it's it's actually suggesting that we're actually overperforming our performance in 2020. And you see that in the polling. You see that in Georgia, right? In Georgia, we did not win the general election, right? We got into a runoff and then we won it in in the in the runoff. But on election day, we were behind in Georgia. In the polling that just came out of the New York Times, which is the best poll, we're up three points. Hopefully the Republicans will stay home because they have crappy candidates. <laughs> Trumpy von Schittler ain't on the ballot, but they are uh, voting for Trumpy von Schittler's um, horses in the race. However, they should have been fucking charged with... Whoop. <laughs> Stevia, Stevia, uh, like Steve, like Steve, Adam and Steve, like Steve. Okay, give me, give me a good mnemonic device. <laughs> Adam and Stevia. Remember? So it's like the the Republicans uh, trying to be funny, like uh, <coughs> that God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Let's see here. Right. I'm posting a podcast. <laughs>
Erica. Posting it with a picture of a screenshot. Me and next to Trumpy Von Schittler. Okay. And we'll start another one. Okay. Hi there. Welcome back to the Trista for General Governor Show. Trista for Easy Mine Inspector. And uh, politics AF, hot on the trail, can't go into jail. And what else? Um, a Berkeley, Oxford honors graduate, former journalist, award-winning comedian, researcher, um, <coughs> public health and ethnobotany, uh, uh, compulsive gardener. In totally into permaculture you ever heard of it you know what permaculture is I've done many 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 gardening shows Trista does her gardening show with Trista for AZ Trista just for Trista for Sheriff Senate <coughs> I do daily ASMRs with cute animals okay let's see what Christo has to say about for just sixty-seven dollars, anyway, you can make it. KAMP Student Radio at the University of Aristotle. Just uh, so you should, you should be posting on their social media feeds like every day. Yes, you're right. Just put that on my list of things to do every day. Now the next week, get your schedule out. Just uh, get your schedule. Start a fresh new page. Week of we're already. Wednesday, November 2, no, 2, okay, I got a lot done actually, um, <clears throat> but every day, okay, every day, things are getting rolling faster than a roller coaster. Funny, but he might be oh, too 20. dumb to see that, but I know you aren't. <laughs> I know I have some of the brightest viewers on this platform, so I want to play something for you because a couple of analysts have keyed in on two big Garland moves just over the weekend. Two big facts that make it clear that old Donnie is in bigger trouble than he realizes and even more immediate trouble than he realizes. We'll come back this and break it down, Bill Jay. This is two days ago. Uh, it's called Trump Golf Course Finally Being Raided for Stolen Files by the FBI. Question mark. With Christ. Oh my God, what's going on with you guys? Okay. 
yeah, I do. I was psychology tutor at Oxford, and I did daily ASMRs to hashtag Heal America. Also went to med school and honors graduate of Taipei Medical University as well. Yeah, I got into NYU Film School, <clears throat> but I rejected them. Ha 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 Their tuition was thirty thousand a year. Can you believe that crap? We really need to put it back to nineteen fifties level. That's my. That's what I propose. Put it back to my mother's tuition that she paid was about fifty bucks a month. I mean, 50 bucks a semester. <clears throat> I think that's fair. And because education is investing in the population. Okay. Right. So, um, let's get back to it. Now joining the Mar-a-Lago investigation, David Raskin was a senior federal prosecutor MSNBC. in New York for many years and is considered an accomplice prosecutor of terrorism cases. Another case we're watching this week, tomorrow, we expect opening statements in the tax fraud trial of the Trump organization. And yes, there is more. Friday is the deadline for former President Trump to respond to a subpoena from the January 6th committee. They expect him to turn over documents by then and appear for testimony on November 14th. Joining us now, MSNBC contributor Jill Weinbank. She's a former Watergate prosecutor, author of the Watergate Girl, and co-host of the Hashtag Sisters in Law podcast. Also with us, political congressional reporter Nicholas Wu. Uh, Nick, let's start with you first on this. How big a deal is Raskin? Well, Raskin's hire shows really how the, the arena of, of Trump's legal problems has shifted uh, from the January 6th committee over to DOJ and how how serious DOJ is in pursuing this investigation. It's something that you know, obviously ramped up in these weeks before the election. DOJ it, you know, is very deliberate in how they go about all of this, and, and it shows that these are very serious people. Over to you, Jill. Uh, you know almost everybody in the business here. Uh, when it comes to Raskin, what does it say about uh, not only who he is, as, as Nick kicked us off with, what, do, what does it mean for the case? Well, they are now focusing on the confidential documents that were kept at Mar-a-Lago, endangering our national security. That's why you're bringing in someone who's a specialist in national security. The recent reporting about documents coming from that pile that involved Iran and China are really scary and threaten our security. So it is a very smart thing to focus on that. It makes it very hard the Department of Justice not to pursue this to an indictment. There have been a number of people prosecuted for having far less dangerous materials in their possession, having wrongfully taken them. And really, Donald Trump, as a former president, has no special right. The world is in chaos. We absolutely, desperately need understanding of our deeply troubled human condition. I'm uh, Jeremy Griffith, I'm an Australian biologist, and I've dedicated my life to understanding and explaining this all-important issue of the human condition. It's unarguable that humanity can't go on the way it is. Indeed, the great fear is we're entering endgame, where we appear to have lost the race between self-destruction and self-understanding. 
However, astonishing as it is, through the advances that have been made in science, we are now able to explain the human condition, which is all described in my book, Freedom, which is free online. It actually presents the breakthrough explanation of the human condition needed for the psychological maturation and transformation of our species. As a, a former president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association, uh, Professor Harry Prosen has said, I have no doubt social rights he has to be held accountable because if not, it's opening the door for anyone in the future to do the same thing or anyone in the what? event that he should ever return to office for him to continue to do even more damage. Hmm. And Nick, uh, when you look at the Trump team and what they're doing yeah. with a subpoena well, for the Jan 6 committee here, what's their plan? Do they just wait it out until the election? Well, it's important to note that these deadlines that the committee sets usually tend to shift a little bit as as people negotiate with the committee. Um, there's likely all sorts of discussions going on between uh, Trump's lawyers. Uh, as we've reported, he's hired a, a, a firm, uh, the Dillon Law Firm, um, to handle a lot of engagement with the committee. Um, and so there will be talks between them and the select committee uh, about how to, how to sort this out. The thing is, um, the former president has been kind of mum about how exactly will handle this subpoena. Um, whether or not he turns um, uh, over documents, you know, we'll see what happens there. But you know, there has been some reporting to suggest that the former president is open to testifying publicly. That's not necessarily something the January 6th committee is looking for uh, at first. So the, the most likely outcome here is that the former president will end up running out the clock on the committee, which, as we know, dissolves at the end of the year. Jill, um, what are some of the options here for the former president as he tries to, as Nick is saying, potentially delaying this process? Well, that is what he's known for, isn't it? <laughs> he is known for delay, deflect, uh, and disinformation. So I think that Nick is correct. He will continue to delay. He cannot just thumb his nose at the committee because we know what happens when that happens. So we can assume that there will be discussions with the committee, but the committee also knows that it has a limited time frame. It set a time frame that was reasonable, but that allowed them to finish their work before they expire at the end of the year. Now, they only expire if the Democrats do not keep all of the House uh, and we don't know that yet. I know what the reporting is. I know what the predictions are. But Take both this is not predictable in the sense that in the last um, elections, the Democrats have outperformed what was expected. And I still believe that American women are motivated by the Dobbs decision to get out there and vote and that that could have a very big impact. So I'm still being... Pollyanna about this maybe, mm. but still hoping that there will be a continuation of this committee and the Department of Justice does not go away. So they can continue this even after uh, if there should be a loss of the Congress. They are still in power. Jill, let's go from D.C. to New York. The tax fraud case. Crazy. Tell us who is expected to testify yeah, there and what we should be watching. Uh, of course, uh, Weissel. So I don't know if you guys caught that, but there's two big things there. The first, and this is connected to what a lot of people have said. 
for a long time about Merrick Garland. Both his cautious supporters and many of his cautious critics, which is saying he isn't actually the kind of person that in a vacuum would want to charge Donald Trump. Like, he believes in law and order and all of that, but he also believes in, like, the system. And, you know, if there's any doubt, he wouldn't charge Donald Trump. We don't like to hear that, but he knows that there's political effects and there's going to be political costs to doing it. And if he could in any way avoid it, he would do so. But because of Donald Trump's lies, because of the severity of the alleged crimes, because of the repeated nature of the, of the, of the alleged crimes, and because of the obstruction connected, and indeed Donald Trump going out into public and his cronies going out into public and bragging about the crimes they did, insisting that yeah, they were never crimes to begin with, with, he has no choice. And so what that's sort of indicating up. is that the moves he's been making is that, you know, I didn't want to have to do this but i've been forced into doing it and i think that argument is suitable for garland because it shows that he's being cautious and moderate that this is the exact opposite of a witch hunt and if anything he's bent over backwards to not charge trump but Trump has given him no choice. And of course, that second factor, bringing in these new investigators, bringing in these all-stars, we've talked about this over the weekend, but it continues to develop. You don't announce on a Friday night, basically, that you're bringing in a legendary counterterrorism expert to take on Donald Trump without it being aimed directly at Trump so he knows what's up, so that you ruin his weekend, so that you destroy his little piddly golf tournament that he had this weekend that he was super proud of, but I don't know if anyone actually paid attention to. You might not even have known there was a tournament. I don't even think it's worth covering. But the point is, he has to realize that this is heating up. That Garland is building an extremely strong case. And Garland is the exact sort of person to bring the case against him. Because you could never make an argument that Merrick Garland was in like a get Trump mindset from day one on the job. Yeah, sure, I'm sure that you know, maybe Garland is still bitter about losing his Supreme Court seat because of the Republicans. But let's be real. Garland is a rules guy, but he's also an institutions guy. And if he could have avoided charging Donald Trump... He likely would have, but because of Donald Trump's own actions, he's bringing in the big anti-terrorist guns to take that SOB down. Donald Trump's weekend is ruined, and maybe even he didn't notice it until someone... Immediately.
I pasted uh, <clears throat> It's getting boring. an ASMR crickets real crickets okay so <clears throat> I'm trying to take a um, still, and then I'm going to cut that down, and then I'm going to post that. Hey! Knock it off, little fucker!
charge GOP. Just open up the fucking news. <clears throat> I'm afraid I'm gonna lose this. Wait. Okay. And stop looking. around the USA. Who's with me? Okay, now I'm posting uh, my campaign video. Y'all really need to step up to the plate and get yourselves to the polls. Bring your friends and family and don't let them not vote. Unless they're Republican. I'm doing voter guide study group on my podcast. Follow from. Okay, so that's one. And. Someone like the can't be tagged. ASU Young Democrats, AZ Central, hmm. Arizona's politics. I had a Presley Axios. 
These are just the ones that are handy. Daily Wildcats. Whoa. I really need to. Copy that. It was collected speeches, my new order. My new these are order. speeches that uh, you seem to admire. What's your reaction? Do you have this book? <laughs> a friend of mine sent me a book. A man who my I think is Jewish and boy. Was yeah, like father, like son. Fred Trump was a Nazi too. Well, old Donnie, for him to continue to do even more damage. And Nick, uh, when you look at the Trump team and what they're doing with a subpoena for the Jan 6 committee here, what's their plan? Do they just wait it out until the election? It's important to note that these deadlines that the committee sets usually tend to shift a little bit as, as people negotiate with the committee. Um, there's likely all sorts of discussions going on between uh, Trump's lawyers. Uh, as we've reported, he's hired a, a, a firm, uh, the Dillon Law Firm, um, to handle a lot of engagement with the committee. Um, and so there will be talks between them and the select committee uh, about how to handle <clears throat> the thing is, um, the former president has been kind of mum about how exactly he'll handle this subpoena. Um, whether or not he turns um, uh, over documents, is, you know, we'll see what happens there. But you know, there has been some reporting to suggest that the former president is open to testifying publicly. That's not necessarily something the January 6th committee is looking Saying potentially delaying this process. 
Well, that is what he's known for, isn't it? <laughs> he is known for delay, deflect, uh, and disinformation. So I think that Nick is correct. He will continue to delay. He cannot just thumb his nose at the committee because we know what happens when that happens. So we can assume that there will be discussions with the committee, but the committee also knows that it has a limited time frame. It set a time frame that was reasonable. So what are you doing? Their work Posting on Lauren Bobert's expire at the end of the year. Now they only Hi there, Christopher. Just, uh, <clears throat> come on, man. All right, I'm almost done. Fucking U.S. Congress. I'm going to try to tag U.S. Congress. So I'm going to do their fucking job. Biden Democrats. Okay, I'm almost in here. <clears throat> okay, all right. Okay, Twitter. What's wrong with you, bird? What the hell? 
Okay, now I'm tagging, posting that on Instagram. So I posted that on Instagram and I'm posting the message as my story and Facebook story. Also share to Democrats. So now I'm going through the list. Stephen Colbert, the Young Democrats. Come on, Trista. Come on, give us some news, please. On the trail. Charles Byers Nambles. Four days ago, I already covered that. <clears throat> Breaking Trump news. Trump lawyers, very well. And the leading cause of bankruptcy, medical debt, and debt collectors yep. can charge outrageous interest, even seize your wages or your home. But uh -huh. Prop 209 caps interest at 3% to protect your property and paycheck. Vote yes. Audible is the best place to listen for everyone. For story people, comedy people. Albert. Right. This is we are now inside one week to the live MSNBC. Turnout is continuing around the nation. You've heard us report on that. Well, that is the Both story. Sides. The latest numbers show more than 29 million Americans have already voted, exceeding those Trump midterms of 2018. We're in full gear, and it's a tense backdrop for these races because there are active federal warnings about threats and attacks on poll workers and the voting oh process itself. We've seen the reports of these self-appointed poll watchers showing up armed and in tactical gear like that shot, that photo we got out of Arizona. Republicans are also running basically insurrection apologists and election deniers for office. It's not normal. So if it feels like the threat levels are rising, it's because they are. Threats to lawmakers have increased tenfold over the several years here of the Trump era. More campaigns will turn on the question of whether candidates will honor democracy itself. So these are truly unusual stakes. And honestly, it complicates how pro-democracy candidates wage their campaigns, if you want to call them that. In fact, that very point came up when we were talking to comedian and political commentator Bill Maher, right here on the beat. Putin was elected. Yeah. Erdogan in Turkey was elected. Viktor Orban. People haven't gotten it, I don't think. This ship of state has hit the iceberg. Uh, People are not still like, acting like it's normal, like they did on the Titanic after the other. Oh, what was that? And then they went back to drinking champagne. But really, the ship was going to go down. 
So when the ship's going down, you put the champagne aside. You have to face it. And so, in a way, that might be a potential question or implicit criticism of the democracy activists, the democracy believers in America, and the Democrats, who between the two parties are, of course, the ones warning about what you have to do so you keep your right to vote. Well, as it happens, Biden aids stress. He has been leading on the fundamental stakes that what Marr was warning about is what the president has already been doing. He laid down that marker about the dangers of a road to fascism right here on the American right, led by Trump. And now there's this new presidential speech on Capitol Hill. It's actually one hour away tonight. And we are told the president will be confronting the insurrection lies, the threats to democracy, this rise in political violence. Even as more Republicans say they may not accept election results, they may not participate in the rule of law, and their party leaders, many of them have failed to clearly condemn the violent attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul, even amidst the new details about it being politically motivated with an attacker who vowed a suicide mission with even more targets. And he had a belief in the MAGA, Pizzagate, stolen election propaganda on the right, one employer telling the Times, he was completely caught up in the MAGA fantasy. Okay. Yeah. Fantasy is a word. Delusion's a word. Those are diplomatic ways to put it when we're facing attempted murder because the right-wing conspiracy theories here are part of the beginning, middle, and end of these violent incidents. And I say this to you in all seriousness tonight as everyone decides whether to vote early or vote on Tuesday or vote at all. This is part of what these midterms are going to test. We're heading into the midterms and you have people on the right trying to either respond to this attack on the Pelosi household by lying about it, pushing conspiracy theories that I'm not going to repeat for you tonight, which is a sign that they know it's so bad it makes them look so bad they have to lie about the fact that some on their side are doing that, or... Some conservatives on air in the echo chamber, they're trying to signal basically a minimization or support for this violence by joking about it, by minimizing about what's now an indictment. Don Jr. had murder. a Halloween party costume. Gavin Newsom thinks if you mock a Democrat, it puts him on a target list. You have Dems and talking heads, like there's any difference, desperately trying to make this about right-wing hate. So Gavin's saying that by saying that he uses more hair gel than John Travolta in Greece, it's going to make people show up to his house with hammers. Like people on the right were always saying, hey, you got to go attack Nancy's husband with a hammer and don't wear pants. It's not a very funny, relatable joke. And this is not a joke. And this is not a drill. What you heard there are individuals using their platform their mind, their effort, their energy, their rhetorical skills, whatever they may be, to try to fundamentally push a lie that mainlines more violence. Because by saying none of this could have been predicted, none of this relates to anything else, the people who are actually trying to lower the temperature and make sure we still have civic, non-violent, democratic debate in this country, they're the bad guys. That kind of talk is obviously dangerous. And I just showed you the warnings from the authorities Bipartisan, the FBI is still run by someone appointed by Trump, which is saying it's not a joke, it's not far fetched, it's the way we live now. It's a serious introduction to the midterms, but it's the news tonight. I want to bring in Pulitzer Prize winner Eugene Robinson and former DNC chair and presidential candidate Howard Dean. Uh, Howard, that's some of what we are hearing. I laid it out. Uh, your reaction. 
Look, I think democracy is on the ballot. Um, sometimes we react very slowly to that. So I'd make two points. <clears throat> First, we need more corporate and institutional leadership. And I'm reminded of what happened when Arizona became the only state in the country to refuse to recognize Martin Luther King Day. Every other legislature in the country passed that. The National Football League and then other sports and businesses refused to do any business in Arizona until their legislature eventually changed that law. Now, this is a much greater stakes than we're recognizing Dr. King's birthday. Uh, but if a state should be taken over by an election denier or a MAGA crackpot, I think it's going to be incumbent on people to say, not going there. We're not putting our business there. We're not putting our economy there. And our, our, you know, in Vermont, you know, nobody gives a damn where we put our business. We're too small. But what does matter is what the National Football League says. What does matter is what Major League Baseball says. And these are these are people who are really do look like the rest of America instead of the crackpot legislature and down in uh, Republican people down in in uh, Arizona or Wisconsin or some of these places where they're a half a step from fascism. Yeah. No, you make a fair point. You mentioned, of course, that approach on the sort of political pressure side on Dr. King's holiday. Dr. King, Eugene, was failed by political violence. Um, people in both parties in America. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. I have been Republican all my life. Mark Fincham is a member of the Oath Keepers. How can you elect somebody to government who's a member of that organization, which frankly should be branded a terrorist organization? He also wants Amen, to have the power to throw out any election with which he disagrees of the people's choice. That's ridiculous. Mark Fincham is unqualified to be anything, let alone Secretary of State. Republican voters against Mark Fincham. <laughs> Endorsements, ask endorsements. It's political violence, but specifically and repeatedly, uh, people advancing civil rights inequality have faced these type of threats. And now you have a lot more threats coming from the right. Um, Hillary Clinton who's been, like Nancy Pelosi, a target of a great deal of villainizing and extreme rhetoric, um, spoke out about this to our own Joy Reid. Take a look. We're seeing a whole political party and those who support it, those who enable it, those who run under its banner, uh, engaging in behavior that is so dangerous. Would we trust somebody who is stirring up these violent feelings, is who is pointing fingers, making a joke about a violent attack on Paul Pelosi? Why would you trust that person to have power over they you, your family, your business? your community fucking inciting Gene. violence well just look at the pat on the back comparison between the two parties and look at the reactions remember the reaction from democrats when when uh, congressman steve scalise a very conservative republican uh, was yeah. shot and nearly killed by a bernie sanders supporter immediately what? bernie uh, issued the strongest statement of con condemnation possible and essentially said this is the you know you find somebody else to support what? this is not anything uh. i believe in that 
you know, this is uh, this is way out of out of bounds. Um, every leading Democrat had the same reaction publicly, immediately, loudly, uh, and compare that to what we have now after this attack on on Paul Pelosi, where you have some Republicans. Um, Fortunately, not all of them actually joking about it, and others uh, just just quiet, just silent, with nothing to say. Uh, it's uh, it, it's a stunning indication of, of where we've come in this country. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, here was Barack Obama last night. If they just ignore or make light of that kind of violence. Or if they encourage their supporters to stand outside voting places armed with guns and dressed in tactical gear, if that's the environment that we create, more people are going to get hurt. Governor Dean? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and that's why these folks are so dangerous. Uh, Next Tuesday is going to be a really big deal. And I I am optimistic. I've repeatedly said I think we'll pick up two in the House and two in the Senate net. Um, But and the numbers early are huge. But we don't know what the Republican numbers are going to be because Democrats traditionally vote early. And these are the biggest numbers we've ever seen in the midterms. That may not be enough. And this is a long term fight. No matter what happens on Tuesday, uh, we're in a big fight here because fascism is a strong force. We've seen it take over civilized countries before. Uh, Germany comes to mind. Uh, Hungary today uh, comes to mind. Um, These are democracies that have gone south and have become authoritarian state. Uh, Brazil, which just rescued itself by a two million vote margin, was headed down that path. And we have to stand up and fight for our country. We can't leave it to the Democratic Party or the anybody else. We have to do it ourselves. And that means we have we have power as consumers. We have power as shareholders. We have powers of people who, have, uh, uh, who yeah. work in big corporations. We have those powers and we have to be willing to use them if uh, the fascists take over on Tuesday. Yeah, and you mentioned Tuesday, and then you're two years away from what is really the ultimate showdown with a with a former president saying he wants to pardon the insurrectionists, uh, that he wants, uh, he says, um, to create create a wider blanket support uh, for this kind of routinized violence. Gene. Well, you know, you mentioned Brazil. Um, uh, Howard mentioned mentioned Brazil yeah. and how it saved itself uh, from from Bolsonaro. Uh, I think I used to cover Brazil Thank for the God. Post. I covered South America, and I think one reason uh, Brazil was able to make that decision, uh, and people in on Bolsonaro's side made that decision, was that in. In the living memory of many Brazilians back in the 1980s, Brazil lost its democracy. It, it, it suffered uh, under a, a long and brutal uh, dictatorship, a military dictatorship in that case. Uh, and I think Brazilians learned that how precious democracy is. Uh, I just hope we don't have to go through that kind of experience to learn that lesson. But because, because once you lose it, it is so hard to get it back. Yeah, you make a great point, both of you touching yeah, on lessons point. from abroad, as well as how a kind of political amnesia is dangerous because people don't understand whether it's in this country or others, uh, how bad it can get. And you don't want to learn that the hard way at a societal level. Uh, Gene and, and Governor Dean on this important topic amidst the midterms as we await the president's speech. Thank you. We have our shortest break, 60 seconds. We are awaiting the president of the United States with a new warning about democracy. We have that for you. And also why Lindsey Graham lost so big 
and an update on the Georgia criminal probe. Stay with me. We're inside a week to the midterms. We expect plenty of closing arguments from all the candidates, certainly from the party leaders like the president. And we've been covering all of that. And we cover the perspectives from really both parties, both sides. And yet, as I discussed with you at the top of the hour, tonight the president is giving a different kind of speech because there is more than just a closing argument about dueling visions for policy. There is now in America, and we say this with all seriousness, dueling visions about whether to keep a real democracy or not. That's a point that the president and the former president on the Democratic side have also been making out on the trail. In just 46 days, democracy will be in the ballot. Americans will have to choose between the MAGA Republican platform, Democrats, independents, and mainstream Republicans who believe in the rule of law. Consider the fact that democracy itself is also on the ballot. Democracy's at stake in this election. That is true. As a newscaster, I can point to examples of why that's objectively true, because we didn't have a peaceful transfer of power in the last election. You probably know about that. And the response has not been only to arrest and indict and try those people or to distance them from mainstream politics. Quite the opposite. The GOP is running a slate of big lie backers. The GOP is running towards minimizing or even supporting the insurrection and towards using extra legal methods to overthrow election results if they don't stay in power. Senator Ron Johnson, (laughs) who's been linked to the coup plot, isn't sure that he'll accept his own election results. We'll see what happens. Is something going to happen on election day, he said? Why should he be able to fucking run for president? Others talking (laughs) like this. Fucking asshole. A found member of an extremist militia promotes violence against the government and was a key organizer on January 6th, where 140 officers were injured and... That is fucking crazy. Of your election Why is he elected? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. Republicans will never lose another election in Wisconsin after I'm elected governor. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we are getting the first excerpts of what the president intends to say. In the prepared remarks, just like in a city. 147 Congress members voted to overturn the Democratic elections! Exclamation point. So all of them should be disqualified under the 14th Amendment! Exclamation point. Do your job as an American and call the U.S. Department of Justice and tell them to indict them all, remove them all, and bar them all from office under the 14th Amendment! Section 3. 202-514-2000. We get these samples in the newsroom. The president expected to say the path to chaos in America is not accepting the results. It would be, quote, unprecedented, unlawful, and un-American. I'm joined now by Democratic Strategist Juanita Tolliver. Welcome back. Thanks, Art. I'll say fact check, mostly true. Everything he said about the warning is fair. He did throw in that word unprecedented, uh, which is a political (laughs) favorite to say that something is unique, one of a kind, has never happened before. Of course, I don't know about you, I'm old enough to remember two years ago, um, when Donald (laughs) Trump did say in public 
He said he wasn't going to follow the peaceful transfer of power. You know, he lies a lot, and sometimes he blurts true things. And then he didn't. He organized people to come on the six. Right. Uh, and they did use violence. So I'm curious both, I wanted to make that distinction, uh, but I'm curious your thought of what it says about our civic report card, the health of this country, that the president does feel the need to make this address tonight here within the hour. It shows concerns that we're about to fail, Ari, and I think that that's what is the impetus for President Biden not only giving the speech five days ahead of the election, but also where he's giving the speech, with the backdrop of the Capitol building, which was the place where that violence unfolded, where every person, every staffer, every worker, every member of Congress had their life threatened on January 6th, all in the direction of Trump, who had spread lies and laid a clear runway to January 6th, just like we're seeing from some of these Republican candidates. And I appreciate you playing that sound clip from Carrie Lake because what she's doing, in, along with other Republicans like Ron Johnson and others, is following that same play, but preemptively trying to plant seeds of doubt and signal to their supporters, hey, we, we can pop off if this doesn't go the way we want. But the truth yeah. comes back to the fact that the president... The former President Obama as well have been clear that democracy is on the ballot. And there's an audience for this speech tonight when we have a majority of the country who says they want to preserve our democracy with their votes in the coming days. And 30 seconds left here because I'm juggling a lot. How do the Democrats, how do you think they're doing in balancing that warning with also trying to remind people why to vote? Because if you're under 30 and you're busy, there might be other issues that also motivate you, not just this big one. Look, the other issues matter, too. I think it all comes back to the fact that nothing gets done without a stable democracy in place. And I think Democrats are nailing that argument clearly in these closing days. Of course, there's always no, more not. to do. And it hopefully you they think have that. continue to deliver a rousing GOTV message because ours is going to come down to who shows up. Yep, that's all fair. Um, well, we're skipping through a bunch of stuff tonight, Juanita Tolliver. Keeping it concise. Sometimes we love that. Thank you. Let me tell folks what's coming up. Democrats warning McConnell will shred the safety net. We have a very special segment on that tonight that I would tell you you're not really going to see anywhere else. Also, what I mentioned, Lindsey Graham losing big. Smackdown. Why did Republicans, Republicans think Clarence Thomas would bail them out on the coup plot? We have both those stories next. <laughs> Georgia was at the center of Trump's... Republicans want to destroy the minimal, comma, residual safety net that we have in this country, exclamation point. Life expectancy for the first time decreased a couple years exclamation point we need an end to fashion fascism exclamation point stop voting for nazis comma america exclamation point dipshits shits to overturn the election and that's why the state stays in the news Supreme Court just handed a big loss to Lindsey Graham, ruling he must testify in that Georgia probe. Now, newly leaked emails show Trump's lawyers had a strategy, hoping Thomas might be their only chance to... Every last visage of... ...worth of Trump's loss on the Supreme Court, because he oversees appeals out of... We know who Carrie Lake is. She's told us. ...to declare an invasion on day one, hour one. 
chance to get a favorable judicial opinion by January 6th, which could hold up the Georgia account in Congress, is from Thomas. That's what one Trump lawyer wrote. While the coup lawyer, John Eastman, replied, I agree, it may be enough to kick the Georgia legislature into gear. That's the same John Eastman whose phone was later seized by the FBI and fled the fifth over a hundred times facing Congress. Is that statement in this memo true? search eastman has a lot of legal problems these leaks though they put heat on him because they show the intent was long after the state <clears throat> u.s justice department comma i sure wish you would do your job exclamation points just charge him with insurrection comma and take away his internet exclamation point put a gag order on his internet lol he will be so pissed Stop voting for Nazis. America, dipshits.
right. Okay. All right then. Trista, this is the most boring project ever. Okay, okay, okay. Let's see, let's put the news back on. And keep control of the house. Uh, and we don't know that yet. I know what the reporting is. I know what the predictions are. But this is not predictable in the sense that in the last um, elections, the Democrats have outperformed what was expected. And I still believe that American women are motivated by the Dobbs decision to get out there and vote and that that can have a very big impact. So I'm still being Pollyanna about this, maybe, mm. but still hoping that there will be a continuation of this committee and the Department of Justice does not go away so they can continue this even after uh, if there should be a loss of the Congress. They are still in power. Jill, let's go from D.C. to New York. The tax fraud case. Tell us who is expected to testify there. What we should be Arizona watching. Daily Star. Oh, of course, uh, Weissel. So I don't know if you guys caught that, but there's two big things there. The first, and this is connected to what a lot of people have said for a long time about Merrick Garland, both his cautious supporters and many of his cautious critics, which is saying he isn't actually the kind of person that in a vacuum would want to charge Donald Trump. Like, he believes in law and order and all of that, but he also believes in, like, the system. Not. And, you know, if there's any doubt he wouldn't charge Donald Trump. We don't like to hear that, but he knows that there's political effects and there's going to be political costs to doing it. And if he could in any way avoid it, he would do so. But because of Donald Trump's lies, because of the severity of the alleged crimes, because of the repeated nature of the, the alleged crimes, and because of the obstruction connected, and indeed Donald Trump going out into public and his cronies going out into public and bragging about the crimes they did, insisting that they were never crimes to begin with, he has no choice. And so what that's sort of indicating is that the moves he's been making is that, you know, I didn't want to have to do this, but I've been forced into doing it. And I think that argument is suitable for Garland because it shows that he's being cautious and moderate, that this is the exact opposite of a witch hunt. And if anything, he's bent over backwards to not charge Trump, yeah. but Trump has given him no choice. And of course, that second factor, bringing in these new investigators, bringing in these all-stars, we've talked about this over the weekend, but it continues to develop. You don't announce on a Friday night, basically, that you're bringing in a legendary counterterrorism expert to take on Donald Trump without it being aimed directly at Trump so he knows what's up, so that you ruin his weekend, so that you destroy his little piddly golf tournament that he had this weekend that he was super proud of, but I don't know if anyone actually paid attention to. You might not even have known there was a tournament. I don't even think it's worth covering. But the point is, he has to realize that this is heating up. That Garland is building an extremely strong case. And Garland is the exact sort of person to bring the case against him. Because you could never make an argument that Merrick Garland was in like a get Trump mindset from day one on the job. Yeah, sure, I'm sure that you know, maybe Garland is still bitter about losing his Supreme Court seat because of the Republicans. But let's be real. Garland is a rules guy, but he's also an institutions guy. And if he could have avoided charging Donald Trump... 
He likely would have. But because of Donald Trump's own actions, he's bringing in the big anti-terrorist guns to take that SOB down. Donald Trump's weekend is ruined, and maybe even he didn't notice it until someone... Right. Okay, so let's go back now to the poll data that's coming through. Midas Touch. I'm a producer. <laughs> and welcome to this edition of The Mighty. This is Ben Micellis joined by Brett and Jordy Micellis. We will be breaking down on this episode. What is the early voting data looking like? What is the real landscape heading into these midterms there's no one better to talk to us about that than simon rosenberg president of the ndn longtime democratic strategist this is his 17th election cycle and he worked as a strategist for the d triple c in 2018 crafting a very successful campaign there simon welcome to the midas touch podcast great to be here and just thanks for all that you guys do it's pretty amazing to watch from the outside well we're happy to have you here and we've been watching you from the outside because one of the things we're focused here <laughs> is the data and you are like us obsessed with the data what is the data reflecting an early voting turnout and so i want to explore what that data is but the first thing that i want to talk about too because we had been discussing this amongst the brothers. We were saying, where are all of these polls that I almost never heard of, like coming from out of nowhere, you know, showing all these Republican leads and kind of out of nowhere. I just saw this flood of it. And you had analyzed that and, and others had analyzed it to Tom Bonnier and some others, you know, and said there may be something going on here. And actually, there is something going on here. Can you explain that? Yeah. And, and this is, you know. It's sort of a, a tragedy in some ways, and it's a reflection of just the how illiberal and anti-democratic the Republican Party has become, which is that they've, there's clearly a, a purposeful campaign to try to gain the polling averages and to create an impression that there's a red wave. As I said, I've, as you said, I've been doing this for 17 sure election cycles, and so I've seen it all, uh, you know, in terms of what Republicans do. But what they're doing now with the polling averages and in, in, is only in seven states, by the way. It's not universal. There's a seven-state concentrated effort to gain the polling averages. And also, I think it's beginning to kick in on national uh, numbers, too. I mean, they've dropped six national tracks in the last two days uh, of polling. And um, in the states, you know, you what you're seeing is just literally a torrent, a flood of these kind of obscure polling outfits dropping polls in states that they don't have any traditional uh, experience in. And now in seven of the battleground states, more than half of the polls taken in October are from Republican firms or Republican organizations, which means that the averages now have been corrupted and polluted and we can't really trust any either on 538 or real clear politics, any of the state averages. I'm worried that it is beginning to happen with the national average, Young too. Democrats. But it's just it's just like, you know, and look, what, what does it mean? It means that they're not confident of winning. I mean, if they have to spend millions of dollars trying to persuade everybody that the election is better than it is, you only do that if you're not winning. Yeah, well, and so this is a sign of desperation to me in some ways. It um, like but it's had an impact. I mean, we all know it's had an impact, right? I mean, there is the, there's been several weeks of kind of, you've been dealing with it, people are kind of down, they think the election's Democrats. slipping away from us, we've had all those headlines. 
a lot of this has been manufactured. It may end up being true. It just isn't true in all, it, not all the data is pointing in the same direction. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and let's talk about the direction that the data is pointing in. Because, yeah. look, if the data is pointing in a bad direction, we would be the first to say here yeah. on the Midas Touch Network and on our Twitter account, hey, here's what's happening. The sky is truly falling down. We need this. It's going to be a disaster. Yeah, like, we would message that because... We tell the truth, and that's what we want to do. But the data is actually reflecting something different. And so yeah. what's the picture of the data high level? Sure. And then let's Democrats. maybe try to get into the weeds a little yeah. bit state by state. Sure. I think, And I think people should be encouraged by what we're seeing. Right? It's not – we are not out of the woods here. This is an unbelievably close election. Everything that everybody does between now and election day matters, particularly voting early. That's really important. But let me just say that the most important data we now have is early vote data. And we have to recognize that because of the way our elections have changed, it's still kind of a new thing that we have this much data in this many states this early, right? This is kind of still a, in the analytical so data world, this is kind of a new, a new thing. And I don't think it's actually become integrated into sort of the data uh, pundits uh, yet because it's kind of still a new baby, right? But what we're seeing in the early vote, because really to me the greatest question about the, the general election was would this overperformance that we saw in the five House specials after Dobbs ended and in Kansas, would it carry over to the general election? Would this energy that we saw be overperformed in the five House specials in various different parts of the country, right? Alaska, New York, Nebraska by seven points over our 2020 numbers. It was really impressive. Nobody thought we were going to win New York 19. Our own polling had us down three to four points and we won by two and a half points, right? So the question for me always was, would this energy carry over to the general? And so far, it looks like it is. Maybe not as high as we want, but certainly we're not down at all, which is sort of the general view. When you look at the uh, Target Smart data, which is the best early vote site, Tom, Tom Bonnier, who you mentioned earlier, um, there is we are up in virtually every battleground over our 2020 numbers. And in some of the states, we're up by a substantial margin. I have the list here. Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio. Uh, we are up by double digits in those states over where we were in 2020. And that's an amazingly good sign. And in some of these states, we're hundreds of thousands of votes ahead of where we were in 2018. At a national level, at this point in 2018, the last midterm, the Republicans had about a 400,000 vote advantage over us. Today, we have a 2.6 million vote advantage over them. So part of this is that our party now has really embraced the early vote. The Republicans used to embrace the early vote until Trump, right? Yeah. And now we're embracing it and we're building these grassroots campaigns that can take our prime voters, our most active voters, getting a vote early, and then we can use the final week of the election to moving into turning out more lower propensity voters, <laughs> um, which will create, you know, increased Democratic turnout. So this, this is what I think a lot of commentators, you often hear people say, well, is this cannibalizing the election day vote? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. If, if anyone who says that has never worked in a campaign, what, what it's doing is by you voting early and all these people voting early, it's going to create more Democrats because it allows our heavily funded campaigns start turning out lower propensity voters today as opposed to two o'clock on election day. So I'm incredibly encouraged by the early vote data. It sort of confounds some of the polling that we're seeing that's showing kind of a shift to the Republicans. You're not seeing that in the early vote data. And so I think to me, that's the most encouraging data that we have 
And it's and it's by the way, it's consistent across states, and it's consistent on day to day, which is really important. You're not seeing huge variances, right? Which is a sign of the data being choppy. It's very consistent across time, across geography, and and over time. And so maybe you can also let our listeners and viewers yeah. know, you know, what happened in 2018, what happened in 2020, and why is it? Oh shit. Is it so uh, impressive that the numbers in 2022 for a midterm versus, say, a general or a midterm compared to a general is yep. where it is now? So we're using, for comparison, we're using 2020 because because 2020 was the election where the Republicans started walking away from early vote. And so it's really the fairest comparison. And we won that election by four and a half points nationally, right? So if we're, and in, and in places like, let me give you an example. I mean, in Pennsylvania, let me just use my data here. In Pennsylvania, we're doing 12 points better than we did in 2020. Well, we only won in 2020, you know, by one, you know, one point, right? And, and what that would mean is, what would that translate into? So if we're doing about, you know, which means we're doing like five points better you know, in, the, in polling, well, if you look at the New York Times poll uh, that just came out about Pennsylvania, Fetterman's up by five points. That's basically the same data. Right? If we're five points ahead in the polling, we'd be about 10 points ahead in the early vote. So it's, it's actually suggesting that we're actually overperforming our performance in 2020. And you see that in the polling. You see that in Georgia, right? In Georgia, we did not win the general election, right? We got into a runoff and then we won it in in the in the runoff but on election day we were behind in georgia in the polling that just came out of the sure new york times which that? is the best poll we're up three Question points mark. that's pretty consistent with the overperformance the, the same thing is true in um in uh what was the other state in, in uh let me just pull this up in iowa right we're seeing you know we're hopeful about that race against chuck grassley we're seeing very strong democratic performance in Iowa, Michigan, they're blowing it out. I mean, I, I think you it would be great to have somebody who's working in Michigan to come on your show and talk about what they're doing there. Not only are we 22 points ahead of where we were in 2020, because we only won by one point there too, but the turnout is astronomical in Michigan. There's something really significant happening in Michigan, very encouraging. Oh, Wisconsin, right? You know, we're all kind of worried about Wisconsin, but the early vote there is very high, and it's 14 points more Democratic than it was in 2020. Wow. And, I, and I'll tell you, anyone who diminishes and says, well, you know, you don't really know about early vote, those are people that have not worked on campaigns. The whole goal of campaigns is to get people to vote for you, right? And so lots of people <laughs> voting for you is really good, right? And it's just that a lot of these pollsters and these analysts don't really know how to use early vote data because this is we've never really seen an election like this. Right. There's never been an election where Democrats have embraced the early a midterm, where we've braced, embraced the early vote the way that we have, build our field operations to turn people out for two to three weeks, not for two days. Right. And so this is a whole new experiment. And the DNC deserves a lot of credit. The DNC put about seventy five million dollars into building out these field operations in these states. And so far, it looks like that was a smart investment. Reminds me of some of those. Uh... Uh, fake New York Times headlines that you see on Twitter that are like, Democrats are overperforming in the early vote. Right. How is this bad for Joe Biden? How is <laughs> By the way, it's exactly true. I mean, I mean, you know, the New York Times Senate polls this week, 
you know, th these are states that we only won by one point last time, right? And we're up by five, we're up by three, right? We're, we're in Arizona, we're up by five. We have never been up by five points in a Senate poll in Arizona in the last 30 years. To be our right? governor, and exclamation so, like, point. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so how is that bad for Democrats, right? You know, and so it's just, you know, the and so, look, we weren't supposed to be competitive this election, right? We weren't supposed to be in it this late. We're just going to have a shot. Yeah, we got a shot. The glass is half full. It's incredible that we're here. We got to go for it. People have got to get the grumpies off here yes. and be really proud of our party for staying in it this long and making this thing competitive when, no, when everyone had written us off. One of the things that I keep hearing ad nauseum on the news is that Dems are actually over overperforming in red states right now, and people are attributing that to the overturning of Roe, but underperforming in blue states where people feel like it yeah. is safer, uh, where their abortion rights are, are going to be more protected. Uh, is that true in your opinion? Yeah, or does that concern it, you? It's a really interesting thing that's happening because every election is unique, right? No election is like any other election. And this election has its own contours. Read and I the think Constitution, there's some evidence 14th Amendment, that in the states point. Uh, like Rhode Island and Oregon and California, where we've not run massive national you know, advertising campaigns over many months, that the Democratic performance is a little low. And I, you know, which means that what that shows is that our ads and our campaigns in the battleground states have been very effective, right? I mean, we, the, the environment is different there. Significant this will be for control of the House. It probably won't impact the Senate, but it could impact the control of the House. You know, we're a little down in California. We're a little bit down in, in, uh, in Oregon right now. A few states where the early vote is off the most for us, the country, is California and Oregon. Gas prices have also been very high there recently, right? And so, and there isn't any statewide race where the money's being spent to turn out, you know, massive numbers. You know, there's not a, a Senate campaign, right? right? Where we have Senate campaigns, we're doing really well. And that's also where the, you know, the DNC put their money in. And the places where we didn't make those kinds of investments were underperforming a little bit. It's a little bit unclear how significant it's going to be, but it's something to watch. And what's going on in Arizona right now? I saw you say that that was one of the states where it does seem yeah. like we are underperforming a little bit. Yeah, I, I think we have to watch Arizona. I mean, the New York Times poll in Arizona was really assuring. I mean, we we're up five there. I think we're up two to three to four there, right? And so the early vote has come in a little low. It's come in a little bit low in terms of num total number. And it's also come in a little low for us, a little bit, not a lot, like not something to freak out about, but it's something to pay attention to. I spoke to Ruben Gallego yesterday, the congressman from Arizona, and he told me that they actually feel good about where things are, that part of the problem they've had is that the ballot is really long. There's a lot of questions and it's slowing down the return of the ballots. Interesting. And they actually, they actually know that to be the case. Whether those people go from slowing to not returning, we don't know yet. But now if you look at Mark Kelly's Twitter feed, he's been doing a lot of media around how to fill out the ballot and talking about the ballot right so they know this is an issue just from their their door-to-door -door. we have a very very strong ground game in arizona we've helped build it you know the, everyone knows about what happened in georgia well something very similar happened in arizona there were a group of people that changed arizona ruben gallego was one of them a lot of it was through years of investment in door-to-door -door, always on campaigning it's a really great story, by the way, for you guys at some point to bring them no, on and sounds, talk about yeah. it. And, and so we know a lot about Arizona on the ground. They're not worried. They feel like the last couple of days have been better. And they're also moving resources and dealing with it, right? They understand what's happening. They're addressing it in their communications um, and, and in their ground game. And they feel like it's going to be okay. 
and and everyone knew this was happening. I mean, this wasn't a secret. I mean, what was interesting, let me give you another example. North Carolina, yeah. there are two states that have actually moved pretty significantly towards us in the last four or five days, right? North Carolina and Texas. Watch Texas. Beto is now uh, only six points. He's about five points ahead of the Democratic performance in 2020. And remember, Biden only lost Texas by five points yeah. in 2020. And he's doing five points better, and it's improved. He was down in the early vote a week ago. And so he's moved like five or six points wow. in the early vote in the last week in a positive direction. We also saw a similar movement in North Carolina. We were down three or four points in North Carolina. We're now up in North Carolina. So this is an example of their superior ground game. Remember, in 2020, we didn't have door knocking capacity as yeah. a party. And we have re we've restored the kind of basic way we do our politics. We're doing it over weeks instead of over a few days. And you're starting to see some of that stuff. Like you're seeing movement in the early vote, uh, which is a sign of our campaigns kicking in and starting to change the nature of who's voting in those elections. And that's one of the reasons why I'm incredibly encouraged by what I'm seeing. Yeah, and one of the groups we've been eyeing about as to who is voting are young voters. I mean, we've been seeing all this yeah. modeling. I'm sure you've seen it also that basically yeah. says, hey, if young voters show up in 2018 numbers, which is a campaign you are very familiar with, yeah. Dem Democrats could keep the House. A, do yeah. you agree with that premise? And B, what does youth voter turnout look like at this moment? Yeah, I, look, we I appreciate what you've been doing on this, because for some reason, the, the youth vote in the Democratic Party still remarkably sits at the kids table and not at the center of our politics. I mean, I did the first poll ever of millennials back in 2005, and I introduced the concept of generational politics to the Democratic Party. My, my organization introduced bilingual polling and Spanish language advertising. And then we introduced polling of young people and, and millennials back in 2005. So I've been part of this whole new coalition conversation for a long time. I am still kind of stunned how peripheral youth voting is to our day-to-day -day politics. It's the center of our politics. It should be. Young people turn out, and you know, it used to be that under 45-year-old voters were a swing vote. In the United States, 20 years ago, it would you know we'd win it sometimes. The Republicans would win it. You know we've been winning now the youth, under 45 year old voters by you know between 10 and 25 points. There's been a structural shift of young people towards the Democrats. The way we have a gender gap, and so we you would think we'd be spending as much money yeah. into that universe right to increase performance and participation, and it was just not making it essential in part because young people are hard to reach. They defy an easy way to run campaigns around them when campaigns are limited for resources. Usually we only really have big youth campaigns during presidential campaigns and the midterms we struggle. In the DCCC, we made young people a major priority. We made Hispanics and young people who are more episodic voters a major priority. We saw extraordinary youth and Hispanic performance in 2018. And you're right. I mean, we just saw the Harvard IOP poll that just came out. John Della Volpe is sort of the the grandmaster of, of youth polling, and that had very encouraging data, right? They had that youth performance, uh, you know, turnout would be equal to or better than 2018 uh, based on their own self-identification about voting. And also we were up 25 points among 18 to 29 year olds, which is enough. I mean, it, it, that's a good number. It's not the greatest number, but it's not bad. And so, yes, you're right. If we have big youth performance over the next week. You know, we're going to have a very good midterm. And I think it's one of the reasons why the Biden White House ended with so many programmatic initiatives designed to speak to young people, right? We saw yeah. gun safety, we saw climate, we saw the student loan forgiveness, we saw the cannabis stuff. 
all that I think was an effort to have an older man create a greater connection with younger people, right? Um, and and I think you know we'll find out if it's going if it's been effective. Yeah, I'm going to toss it over to Jordi in just a sec. But before I do, given all that we've talked about during this conversation, why do you think the media is so quick to go along with these narratives that Republicans dangle in front of them all the time? Yeah, I mean, look, this is we'll come back after the election and do a whole show on this, I think. But I, my quick answer is that I think a lot of people bought into the red wave narrative in the spring. And if it doesn't happen, they're going to be professionally embarrassed. And I think that's like, that's the bottom line. I mean, I think there's a lot of other reasons why, right? I, I, and I think that, um, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of media commentators, <laughs> a lot of pollsters, a lot of people in our, you know, both in our family, frankly, and also in the media sort of believed this was going to be a bad midterm. And they want it to be a bad midterm for their professional advancement and their career. That is adorable. And so every time there's point. anything that looks positive for the Republicans, it gets blown up. And and I can tell you, as somebody, as you guys know, I've been pounding away every day and talking to reporters. I mean, I used to be the spokesperson for the DNC. I've been doing this a long time. I have been selling all sorts of stuff to reporters in the last few months, but they just don't fight because it doesn't fit the red wave narrative. Yeah. And and so I, I think we also I think we also have to acknowledge that they kind of out hustled us in this a little bit, mm. right? We got out organized here and, and we don't, part of the reason you guys do what you do is you take the information war that we're in every day really seriously. I still think there are parts of our party that don't take this seriously enough and don't really understand the nature of the conflict that we're in with the other side. And I think we got, I think we, we underperformed a little bit in the communications front as a party this cycle. So I'm a serious question here. Are, yeah. are Republicans even talking about voting? I mean, I see them memeing QAnon conspiracies and Photoshop Donald Trump with six-pack abs, but <laughs> are they organizing in that way? It's going to be a really interesting question. I mean, I, one of my favorite stories this cycle was that, you know, the Republicans are talking about all these Hispanic vote centers that they've built all around the country where are community centers. People come in and do whatever Adorable. they're going to do. And I have a point. reporter who's in Nevada call me and say she went to the, the community center in Las Vegas four times and it was never open, you know, and, Congratulations, and, it, and so, you know, look, traditionally they don't Argentina do GOTV the way that we do Ms. because Puerto they have, you know, their voters are more um, regular voters. They have a higher percentage of regular routine, routinized voters in their coalition than we do. We have to do more to turn out our, we have more voters, but they have more regular voters. We have more irregular voters, right? So, you know, I think that everyone thinks in this election that the Republican turnout is going to be very high. The question is what happens on our side. And, and, I, and I think that that's why this early vote could be challenging some of the models that pollsters have that are assuming a significantly more Republican vote on Election Day. We didn't see that in the five House specials. We didn't see that in Kansas. And, you know, the real question now is will the anti-MAGA majority that showed up in such record numbers in the last two elections, will it show up again? And I remain optimistic based on the early vote data that it will. I love this phrase that you used earlier, get the grumpies off. I, I, might, need to, I might need to steal that. So we're only a handful of, of days away from these midterms now. There's, you know, there, there may be a lot to be distracted about, but what's your message to our listeners about this notion of, of staying focused down the home stretch and making sure that they get the grumpies off? Yeah, listen, there's going to have to be a big conversation after the election about the, the pessimism 
that reigned over our family over the last year or so. I think something happened during the BBB fight last fall where we kind of got went fought with each other and there was sort of like a anger and frustration inside the family that we never really worked through, to be honest. And, and I think that my view is that the kind of frustration and anger disappointment it's self-indulgent we don't adorable exclamation point congratulations ladies sitting around you know, being pissed point. At their brother who you know was three minutes late to dinner or didn't return his text on time i mean you know we have an urgent election in front of us and everybody's got to buck up do the work right realize that our democracy is on the line and we'll go have all the grumpy stuff after the election but you know listen joe biden's been a really good president our party has done a remarkable job over the last 30 years i'd rather be us than them every day in the week and somehow we've got to find, you know, I was a Clinton guy and Bill Clinton always said that optimism may be the most powerful tool that we have in the Democratic Party. We have to regain that sense. We're going to pull up. <clears throat> pull up. 2020, you know, by one, you know, one point, right? Pull up the and and what that would mean is what would that translate into? So for doing about you know which means doing like five points better you know in the, in polling. Well, if you look at the New York Times poll uh, that just came out about Pennsylvania, Fetterman's up by five points. That's basically the same data, right? If we're five points ahead in the polling, we'd be about ten points ahead in the early vote. So it's it's actually suggesting that we're actually overperforming our performance in 2020. And you see that in the polling. You see that in Georgia, right? In Georgia, we did not win the general election, right? We yeah. Got what into about all those we won it in, votes that in the, in the Lindsey Graham and other Republicans got thrown out? Polling that just came out of the New York Times, which is the best poll. We're up three points. That's pretty consistent with the overperformance of the early vote data. The same thing is true. We need eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes. Uh, what was the other state in? in uh, let me just pull this up. In Iowa, right? We're seeing, you know, we're hopeful about that race against Chuck Grassley. We're seeing very strong Democratic performance in Iowa. Michigan, they're blowing it out. I mean, I, I think you. It would be great to have somebody who's working in Michigan come on your show Shit, and talk I'm about so what tired. they're doing He's there. Fucking Not only fascist. Are we two points ahead of where we were in 2020, because we only won by one point there too. But the turnout is astronomical in Michigan. There's something really significant happening in Michigan. Very encouraging. Oh, Wisconsin. You know, we're all kind of worried about Wisconsin, but the early vote there is very high, and it's 14 points more Democratic than it was in 2020. Wow. And, I, and I'll tell you, anyone who diminishes and says, well, you know, you don't really know about early vote, those are the people that have not worked on campaigns. The whole goal of campaigns is to get people to vote for you, right? And so lots of people <laughs> voting for you is really good, right? And it's just that a lot of these posters and these analysts don't really know how to use early vote data. This is, we've never really seen an election like this. Right? There's never been an election where Democrats have embraced the early uh, midterm, embraced, embraced the early vote the way that we have, build our field operations to turn people out for two to three weeks, not for two days, right? And so this is a whole new experiment. And the DNC deserves a lot of credit. The DNC put about $75 million into building out these field operations in these states. And so far, it looks like that was a smart investment. Reminds me yeah, of some of those... Uh, fake New York Times oh. headlines that you see on Twitter that are like, Democrats are overperforming in the early vote. <laughs> no, it's, it's bad for Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, it's exactly true. I mean, I mean, you know, the New York Times Senate polls this week, 
you know, these, these are states that we only won by one point last time, right? And we're up by five, we're up by three, right? We're, we're in Arizona, we're up by five. We have never been up by five points in a Senate poll in Arizona in the last 30 years, right? And so, yeah, like, but what about like, the governor, the governor's so race? The Democrats, right? fucking close. You know, and so it's just, you know, the, and so, look, we weren't supposed to be competitive this election, right? We weren't supposed to be in it this late. We're just going to have a shot. Yeah, we got a shot. Glass it's supposed to be forward. a fucking landslide if everybody did their fucking job. Here yeah. And be really proud of our party for staying in it this long and making this thing competitive when, no, when everyone had written us off. One of the things that I what? keep hearing ad nauseum on the Looking news is that Dems are overperforming over in red states right now, and people are attributing that to the overturning of Roe, but underperforming in blue states where people feel like it yeah. is safer, uh, where their abortion rights are, are going to be more protected. Uh, is that true in your opinion, yeah, or does that concern it's, you? It's a really interesting thing that's happening, because every election is unique, right? No election is like any other election, and this election has its own contours, and I think there's some evidence that in the states uh, like Rhode Island and Oregon and California, where we've not run massive national, you know, advertising campaigns over many months, that the Democratic performance is a little low. And I, you know, which means that what that shows is that our ads and our campaigns in the battleground states have been very effective, right? I mean, we, the, the environment is different there. Significant this will be for control of the House. It probably won't impact the Senate, but it could impact the control of the House. You know, we're a little down in California. We're a little bit down in uh, in Oregon right now. Two states where the early vote is off the most for us in California and Oregon. Gas prices have also been very high there recently, right? And so, and there isn't any statewide race where the money's being spent to turn out, you know, massive numbers. You know, there's not a, a Senate campaign, right? right? Where we have Senate campaigns, we're doing really well. And that's also where the you know, the DNC put their money in. And the places where we didn't make those kinds of investments were underperforming a little bit. It's a little bit unclear how significant it's going to be, but it's something to watch. And what's going on in Arizona right now? I saw you say that that was one of the states where it does seem yeah. like we are underperforming a little bit. Yeah, I, I think we have to watch Arizona. I mean, the New York Times poll in Arizona was really assuring. I mean, we we're up five there. I think we're up two to three to four there, right? And so the early vote has come in a little low. It's come in a little bit low in terms of num total number, and it's also come in a little low for us, a little bit, not a lot, like not something to freak out about, but it's something to pay attention to. I spoke to Ruben Gallego yesterday, the congressman from Arizona, and he told me that they actually feel good about where things are, that part of the problem they've had is that the ballot is really long. There's a lot of questions, and it's slowing down the return of the ballot. Interesting. And they actually, they actually know that to be the case. Whether those people go from slowing to not returning, we don't know yet. But now if you look at Mark Kelly's Twitter feed, he's been doing a lot of media around how to fill out the ballot and talking about the ballot, right? So they know this is an issue just from their their door-to-door. -door. We have a very, I'm very going to do a podcast about build it. You know, going over the vote booklet. What happened in Georgia. Well, something very well, similar happened in Arizona. There were a group of people that changed Arizona. Ruben Gallego was one of them. A lot of it was through years of investment in door-to-door, -door, always on campaigning. It's a really great story, by the way, for you guys at some point to bring them on and talk <laughs> yeah. about it. And, and so we know a lot about Arizona on the ground. They're not worried. They feel like the last couple of days have been better, and they're also moving resources and dealing with it, right? They understand what's happening. They're addressing it in their communications um, and, and in their ground game, and they feel like it's going to be okay. 
And, and everyone knew this was happening. I mean, this wasn't a secret. I mean, what was interesting, let me give you another example. North Carolina, yeah. there are two states that have actually moved pretty significantly towards us in the last four or five days, right? North Carolina and Texas. Watch Texas. Beto is now uh, only six points. He's about five points ahead of the Democratic performance in 2020. And remember, Biden only lost Texas by five points yeah. in 2020. And he's doing five points better, and it's improved. He was down in the early vote a week ago. And so he's moved like five or six points wow. in the early vote in the last week in a positive direction. We also saw a similar movement in North Carolina. We were down three or four points in North Carolina. We're now up in North Carolina. So this is an example of their superior ground game. Remember, in 2020, we didn't have door-knocking capacity as yeah. a party. And we have we've restored the kind of basic way we do our politics. We're doing it over weeks instead of over a few days. And you're starting to see some of that stuff. Like, you're seeing movement in the early phase, uh, which is a sign of our campaigns kicking in and starting to change the nature of who's voting in those elections. And that's one of the reasons why I'm incredibly encouraged by what I'm saying. Yeah, and one of the groups where we've been eyeing about as to who is voting are young voters. I mean, we've been seeing all this yeah. modeling. I'm sure you've seen it also. That basically yeah. says, hey, if young voters show up in 2018 numbers, which is a campaign you are very familiar with, yeah. Dem Democrats could keep the House. A, do yeah. you agree with that premise? And B, what does youth voter turnout look like at this moment? Yeah, I, look, we, I appreciate what you've been doing on this, because for some reason, the, the youth vote in the Democratic Party still remarkably sits at the kids' table and not at the center of our politics. I mean, I did the first poll ever of millennials back in 2005, and I introduced the concept of generational politics to the Democratic Party. My, my organization introduced bilingual polling and Spanish language advertising, and then we introduced polling of young people and, and millennials back in 2005. So I've been part of this whole new coalition conversation for a long time. I am still kind of stunned how peripheral youth voting is to our day-to-day -day politics. It's the center of our politics. It should be. Young people turn out, and you know, it used to be that under 45-year-old voters were a swing vote. In the United States, 20 years ago, it would you know we'd win it sometimes. The Republicans would win it. You know we've been winning now the youth under 45 year old voters by you know between 10 and 25 points. There's been a structural wow. shift of young people towards the Democrats the way we have a gender gap. And so we you would think we'd be spending gender as much money into that universe right to increase performance and participation, dudes. and it was just not making oh, it essential in part because young people are hard to reach. They defy an easy way to run campaigns around them when campaigns are limited for resources. Usually we only really have big youth campaigns during presidential campaigns or midterms we struggle. In the DCCC, we made young people a major priority. We made Hispanics and young people who are more episodic voters a major priority. We saw extraordinary youth and Hispanic performance in 2018. And you're right. I mean, we just saw the Harvard IOP poll that just came out. John Delabothe is sort of the, the grandmaster of, of youth polling. And that had very encouraging data, right? They had that youth performance, uh, you know, turnout would be equal to or better than 2018 uh, based on their own self-identification about voting. And also we were up 25 points among 18 to 29-year-olds, which is enough. I mean, it, that's a good number. It's not the greatest number, but it's not bad. And so, yes, you're right. If we have big youth performance over the next week, you know, we're going to have a very good midterm. And I think it's one of the reasons why the Biden White House ended with so many programmatic initiatives designed to speak to young people, right? We saw yeah. safety, we saw climate, we saw the student loan forgiveness, we saw the cannabis stuff. 
all that I think was an effort to have an older man create a greater connection with younger people, right? Yeah. Um, and and I think you know we'll find out if it's going to if it's going effective. Yeah, I'm going to toss it over to Jordy in just a sec. But before I do, given all that we've talked about during this conversation. Hi, Mimi. Why do you think the media is so quick to go along with these narratives that Republicans dangle in front of them on the ground? Yeah, I mean, look, this is... Because it's we'll run by the, the fucking right-wingers. But I, my quick oh. answer is that I think a lot of people bought into the red wave narrative in the spring. And if it doesn't happen, they're going to be crushed and embarrassed. And I think that's, like, that's the bottom line. I mean, I think there's a lot of other reasons why, right? I, I, and I think that... Um, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of media commentators, a lot of pollsters, a lot of people, you know, both in our family, especially, and also in the media, sort of believe this is going to be a bad midterm, and they it's want it to bad be a bad midterm for their professional advancement and their careers. And so every time there's anything that looks positive to the Republicans, it gets blown up. And, and I can tell you, as somebody, as you guys know, I've been pounding away every day and talking to reporters. I mean, I used to be the spokesperson for DNC. I've been doing it for a long time. I have been selling all sorts of stuff to reporters in the last few months that they just don't fight because it doesn't fit the red wave narrative. And and so I, I think we also I think we also have to acknowledge that they kind of outhustled us in this a little bit. Right? We got out organized here, and and we don't. Part of the reason you guys do what you do is you take the information for us that we're in every day. We're oh, I, I still think there are parts of our party that don't take this seriously enough and don't really understand the nature of the conflict that we're in with the other side. And I think we got, I think we, we underperformed a little bit in the communication front as a party this cycle. But a serious question here. Are, yeah. are Republicans even talking about voting? I mean, I see them memeing QAnon conspiracies and Photoshop Donald Trump with TikTok ads, but are they organizing in that way? It's going to be a really interesting question. I mean, I, one of my favorite stories in this cycle was that, you know, the Republicans are talking about all these Hispanic vote centers that they've built all around the country where the community centers, people come in and do whatever they're going to do. And I have a reporter who's in Nevada call me and say she went to the, the community center in Las Vegas four times and it was never open. You know, and, 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 and so, you know, look, traditionally they don't do GOTV the way that we do because they have... You know, their voters are more um, regular voters. They're the higher percentage of regular routine voters in their coalition than we do. We have to do more to turn that up. We have more voters, but they have more regular voters. We have more irregular voters, right? So, you know, I think that everyone thinks in this election that the Republican turnout is going to be very high. The question is what happens on our side. And, and, I, and I think that that's why this early vote could be challenging some of the models that pollsters have that are assuming a significantly more Republican vote on election day. We didn't see that in the five house specials. We didn't see that in Kansas. And, you know, the real question now is, will the anti-MAGA majority that showed up in such record numbers in the last two elections, will it show up again? And I remain optimistic based on the early vote data that it will. I love this phrase that you used earlier, get the grumpies off. I, I might even steal that. So we're only a handful of days away from these midterms now. There's, you know, there, there may be a lot to be distracted about. But what's your message to our listeners about this notion of, of staying focused down the home stretch and making sure that they get the grumpies off? Yeah, listen, there's going to have to be a big conversation after the election about the, the pessimism uh, that reigned over our family over the last year or so. 
I think something happened during the DVD fight last fall where we kind of got and fought with each other and then sort of like a anger and frustration inside the family that we never really worked through, to be honest. And, and I think that my view is that the kind of frustration and anger, disappointment, it's self-indulgent. We don't do that. Do you think people in Ukraine right now are sitting around, you know, being pissed that their brother, you know, was three minutes late to dinner or didn't return his text on time? I mean, you know, we have an urgent election in front of us and everybody's got to buck up, do the work, right? Realize that our democracy is on the line and we'll go have all the gruffy stuff after the election. But, you know, listen, Joe Biden's been a really good president. Our party has done a remarkable job over the last 30 years. I'd rather be us than them every day in the week. And yeah. somehow we've got to find, you know, I was a Clinton guy. And Joe Clinton always said that optimism may be the most powerful tool that we have in yeah. the Democratic Party. Right. We have to regain that Don't sense fuck of optimism this up, and hope and, and, you know, shirk off the grumpies, right? It's, t it's become too widespread. And I will tell you, I've never seen anything like this in the 30 years I've been doing this. This is something that's unique to this cycle. I think some of this is that, and what we can talk about after the election, is I think a lot of what the Republican Party and Fox News and Russia and China and Saudi Arabia and, and Iran try to do in our domestic discourse is they try to spread negative sentiment. They try to make the United States feel less good about itself, to make us feel less good about our country, to make us less feel good about our own party. We're being flooded with negative sentiment. And that's why it's really important that work you're doing, where you're spreading positive sentiment, real talk, you know, getting the grumpies off, right? This is an urgent thing, because I think some of this is being done to us you know, and, and we have to get smarter about the information war that we're in. And we've got, and part of it is about the role of negative and positive sentiment. I think this is a really important, big conversation that we have to have after the election, which is why what you're seeing on my Twitter feed is I'm being unrelentingly positive right now. I'm trying just to present the data that I can see. I'm not cherry picking stuff. I'm not, you know, manipulating stuff. I'm just looking at stuff and I'm sharing what I see. But I'm only sharing the things that are happy because there's an entire party on the other side that's spreading, spending all their time telling you all the reasons not to be happy. I'm not interested in doing their work for them. And we as Democrats have to learn to stop doing the Republican Party's work for them. We can say things that are declared sentences that have a period, and we don't have to use but and however, because every time we say but and however, we're doing the Republican Party's work for them. And we have to unlearn some of the habits that we've gained in recent years, the self-doubt that's creeped in. You know, guys, screw it. Like, I mean, this is an amazing party. We're all lucky to be doing what we're doing. We've done so much good for the country. we got to be loud and proud about who we are and get the grumpies off and go win these goddamn midterms, right? That's what we got to do. And so I yeah. really appreciate the opportunity to be with you all today. And, and I just am grateful for all the work yeah. that you do day in and day out. It really matters. Thank you so much, Simon, and we appreciate all the great work that, that you do day in and day out. And you may have just answer that with that incredible, I, I want to run through a brick wall right now and just sprint through <laughs> these, you know, these midterms, but what's the single most important thing someone listening to this podcast can do right now to help yeah. the Democrats win these elections? There's three important things. You have to vote early. Voting early creates more Democratic turnout. This is really important. It's a new thing. We have to learn how to vote early. It allows the campaigns to move to lower propensity voters and make it more likely that we win the election. Two, whatever you do, texting, door knocking, postcards, right, um, you know, phone calling, do more of it. Three, spread positive sentiment through your networks. Four, give a little bit of money. But I think at this point, you know, so much money. The, the grassroots of the Democratic Party have really rallied. Our candidates have more money than the Republicans do. 
I think at this point, 50 bucks here or there is less important than all the work you can do. We need to create this wave, right, of labor and work and enthusiasm to close really strong. Do what you can. Whatever you thought you were going to do, do a little bit more. Simon Rosenberg, thank you so much for sharing all that insight with us. Truly an incredible conversation. We appreciate you. Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks for all that you did. Yeah, really. At Mind of Touch, we are unapologetically pro-democracy, and we demand justice and accountability. That's why we're spreading our message to Convict 45. So proud to be a Mind Touch producer. Got the little production credit twice a week. Um, <clears throat> let's pull up. Pull up. Oh my. Both of these phones are stuck. What up, brother, needs to you too? Polling had us down three to four points, and we won by two and a half points, right? So the question for me always was, would this energy come over to the general? And so far, it looks like it is. Maybe not as high as we want, but certainly we're not down at all. It's just sort of the general view. When you look at the uh, Target Smart data, which is the best early vote by Tom, Tom Bonnier, who you mentioned earlier, um, there is, we are up in virtually every battleground over our 2020 numbers. And in some of the states, we're up by a substantial margin. I have the list here. Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, uh, we are up by double digits in those states over where we were in 2020. And that's an amazingly good sign. And in some of these right. states, we're hundreds of thousands of votes ahead of where we were in 2018. Right. At a national level, at this that's point in 2018, the last midterm, the Republicans had about a 400,000 vote advantage over us. Today, we have a 2.6 million vote advantage <laughs> over them. So part of this is that our party now has really embraced the early vote. The Republicans used to embrace the early vote until Trump, right? And now we're embracing it and we're building these grassroots campaigns that can take our prime voters, our most active voters, getting them vote early, and then we can use the final week of the election to moving into turning out more lower propensity voters, um, which will create, you know, increased Democratic turnout. So this, this is what I think a lot of commentators, you often hear people say, well, is this cannibalizing the election day vote? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Anyone who says that has never worked in a campaign. What it's doing is by you voting early and all these people voting early, it's going to create more Democrats. So it allows our heavily funded campaigns to start turning out lower propensity voters today as opposed to 2 o'clock on election day. So I'm incredibly encouraged by the early vote data. It sort of confounds some of the polling that we're seeing that's showing kind of a shift to the Republicans. You're not seeing that in the early vote data. And so I think, to me, that's the most encouraging data that we have. And, it, and it's, by the way, it's consistent across states, and it's consistent on day-to-day, -day, which is really important. You're not seeing huge variances, right, which is a sign of the data being choppy. It's very consistent across, time, across geography and, and over time. And so maybe you can also let our listeners and viewers yeah. know, you know, what happened in 2018, what happened in 2020, and why is it so um, impressive that the numbers in 2022 for a midterm versus, say, a general, or a midterm compared to a general, is yeah. where it is now? 
So we're using, for comparison, we're using 2020 because because 2020 was the election where Republicans started walking away from early vote. And so it's really the fairest comparison. And we won that election by four and a half points nationally, right? So if we're, and in, and in places like, let me give you an example. I mean, in Pennsylvania, let me just use my data here. In Pennsylvania, we're doing 12 points better than we did in 2020. Well, we only won 2020, you know, by one you know, one point, right? And and what that would mean is, what would that translate into? So if we're doing about, you know, which means we're doing like five points better, you know, in the in polling. Well, if you look at the New York Times poll uh, that just came out about Pennsylvania, Fetterman's up by five points. That's basically the same data, right? If we're five points ahead in the polling, we'd be about ten points ahead in the early vote. So it's it's actually suggesting that we're actually overperforming our performance in 2020. And you see that in the polling. You see that in Georgia, right? In Georgia, we did not win the general election, right? We got into a runoff, and then we won it in, in, the, in the runoff. But on election day, we were behind in Georgia. In the polling that just came out of the New York Times, which is the best poll, we're up three points. That's pretty consistent with the overperformance of the early vote data. The same thing is true in, um, in uh, what was the other state? In, in, uh, let me just pull this up. In Iowa, right, we're seeing, you know, we're hopeful about that race against Chuck Grassley. We're seeing very strong Democratic performance in Iowa. Michigan, they're blowing it out. I mean, I, I think you, it would be great to have somebody who's working in Michigan to come on your show and talk about what they're doing there. Not only are we 22 points ahead of where we were in 2020, because we only won by one point there, too, but the turnout is astronomical in Michigan. There's something really significant happening in Michigan, very encouraging. Oh, Wisconsin, right? You know, we're all kind of worried about Wisconsin, but the early vote there is very high, and it's 14 points more Democratic than it was in 2020. Wow. And, I, and I'll tell you, anyone who diminishes and says, well, you know, you don't really know about early vote, those are people that have not worked on campaigns. The whole goal of campaigns is to get people to vote for you, right? And so lots of people <laughs> who voted for you is really good, right? And it's just that a lot of these pollsters and these analysts don't really know how to use early vote data. Cause this is We've never really seen an election like this. Right? There's never been an election where Democrats have embraced the early or midterm, where we've embraced, embraced the early vote the way that we have, build our field operations to turn people out for two to three weeks, not for two days, right? And so this is a whole new experiment. And the DNC deserves a lot of credit. The DNC put about $75 million into building out these field operations in these states. And so far, it looks like that was a smart investment. Reminds me of some of those... Uh fake New York Times headlines that you see on Twitter that are like, Democrats are overperforming in the early vote. Oh, is this bad for Joe Biden? <laughs> By the way, it's exactly true. I mean, I mean, you know, the New York Times Senate polls this week, you know, these, these are states that we only won by one point last time, right? And we're up by five, we're up by three, right? We're, we're in Arizona, we're up by five. We have never been up by five points in a Senate poll in Arizona in the last 30 years. Right, and so like, you know, like it's exactly. so how about that for Democrats, right? You know, and so it's just you know, the, and so look, we weren't supposed to be competitive oh, this election, we, right? We weren't supposed to be in it this late. We're gonna give ourselves a shot. Yeah, we got a shot. Glasses half full. It's incredible that we're here. We've got to go for it. People have got to get the grumpies off here and be really proud of our party for staying in it this long and making this thing competitive when no when everyone had written us off.
One of the things that I keep hearing ad nauseum on the news is that Dems are actually over overperforming in red states right now, and people are attributing that to the overturning of Roe, but underperforming in blue states where people feel like it is yeah. safer, uh, where their abortion rights are, are going to be more protected. Uh, is that true in your opinion, yeah, or does that concern you? It's a really interesting thing that's happening, because every election is unique, hey. right? No election is like any other election, and this election has its own contours, and I think there's some evidence that in the states uh, like Rhode Island and Oregon and California, where we've not run massive national you know, advertising campaigns over many months, that the Democratic performance is a little low. And I, you know, which means that what that shows is that our ads and our campaigns in the battleground states have been very effective, right? I mean, we, the, the environment is different there. Significant this will be for control of the House. It probably won't impact the Senate, but it could impact the control of the House. You know, we're a little down in California. We're a little bit down in, in, uh, in Oregon right now. A few states where the early vote is off the most for us country is California and Oregon. Gas prices have also been very high there recently, right? And so, and there isn't any statewide race where the money's being spent to turn out, you know, massive numbers. You know, there's not a, a Senate campaign, right? Where we have Senate campaigns, we're doing really well. And that's also where the, you know, the DNC put their money in. And the places where we didn't make those kinds of investments were underperforming a little bit. It's a little bit unclear how significant it's going to be, but it's something to watch. And what's going on in Arizona right now? I saw you say that that was one of the states where it does seem yeah. like we are underperforming a little bit. Yeah, I, I think we have to watch Arizona. I mean, the New York Times poll in Arizona was really assuring. I mean, we were up five there. I think we're up two to three to four there, right? And so the early vote has come in a little low. It's come in a little bit low in terms of num total number, and it's also come in a little low for us, a little bit, not a lot, like not something to freak out about, but it's something to pay attention to. I spoke to Ruben Gallego yesterday, the congressman from Arizona, and he told me that they actually feel good about where things are, that part of the problem they've had is that the ballot is really long. There's a lot of questions, and it's slowing down the return of the ballot. Interesting. And they actually, they actually know that to be the case. Whether those people go from slowing to not returning, we don't know yet. But now if you look at Mark Kelly's Twitter feed, he's been doing a lot of media around how to fill out the ballot and talking about the ballot, right? So they know this is an issue just from their door-to-door. Their -door. We have a very, very strong ground game in Arizona. Ruben helped build it. You know, the, everyone knows about what happened in Georgia. Well, something very similar happened in Arizona. There were a group of people that changed Arizona. Ruben Gallego was one of them. A lot of it was through years of investment in door-to-door, always-on campaigning. It's a really great story, by the way, for you guys at some point to bring them no, on and sounds, talk yeah. about it. And, and so we know a lot about Arizona on the ground. They're not worried. They feel like the last couple of days have been better, and they're also moving resources and dealing with it, right? They understand what's happening. They're addressing it in their communications um, and, and in their ground game, and they feel like it's going to be okay. And, and everyone knew this was happening. I mean, this wasn't a secret. I mean, what was interesting, let me give you another example. North Carolina, yeah. there are two states that have actually moved pretty significantly towards us in the last four or five days, right? North Carolina and Texas. Watch Texas. Beto is now uh, only six points. He's about five points ahead of the Democratic performance in 2020. And remember, Biden only lost Texas by five points yes. in 2020. And he's doing five points better, and it's improved. He was down in the early vote a week ago. And so he's moved like five or six points 
wow. in the early road in the last week in a positive direction. That's we also awesome. saw a similar movement in North Carolina. We were down three or four points in North Carolina. We're now up in North Carolina. So this is an example of their superior ground game. And remember, in 2020, we didn't have door knocking capacity as yeah. a party. And we have re we've restored the kind of basic way we do our politics. We're doing it over weeks instead of over a few days. And you're starting to see some of that stuff. Like you're seeing movement in the early vote, uh, which is a sign of our campaigns kicking in and starting to change the nature of who's voting in those elections. And that's one of the reasons why I'm incredibly encouraged by what I'm seeing. Yeah, and one of the groups we've been eyeing about as to who is voting are young voters. I mean, we've been seeing all this yeah. modeling. I'm sure you've seen it also. That basically yep. says, hey, if young voters show up in 2018 numbers, which is a campaign you are very familiar with, yep. Dem Democrats could keep the House. A, do yep. you agree with that premise? And B, what does youth voter turnout look like at this moment? Yeah, I, look, we, I appreciate what you've been doing on this because for some reason the, the youth vote in the Democratic Party still remarkably sits at the kids' table and not at the center of our politics. I mean, I did the first poll ever of millennials back in 2005, and I introduced the concept of generational politics to the Democratic Party. My, my organization create introduced bilingual polling and Spanish language advertising and then we introduced polling of young people and, and millennials back in 2005 so I've been part of this whole new coalition conversation for a long time I am still kind of stunned how peripheral youth voting is to our day-to-day -day politics it's the center of our politics it should be young people turn out and you know it used to be that under 45 year old voters were a swing vote in the United States. 20 years ago, it would, you know, we'd win it sometimes. The Republicans would win it. You know, we've been winning now the youth under 45-year-old voters by, you know, between 10 and 25 points. There's been a structural shift of young people towards the Democrats the way we have a gender gap. And so we you would think we'd be spending as much money yeah. into that universe, right, to increase performance and participation. And it was just not making it essential, in part because young people are hard to reach. They defy an easy way to run campaigns around them when campaigns are limited for resources. Usually we only really have big youth campaigns during presidential campaigns and the midterms we struggle. In the DCCC, we made young people a major priority. We made Hispanics and young people who are more episodic voters a major priority. We saw extraordinary youth and Hispanic performance in 2018. And you're right. I mean, we just saw the Harvard IOP poll that just came out. John Zellabothe is sort of the, the grandmaster of, of youth polling. And that had very encouraging data, right? They had that youth performance, uh, you know, turnout would be equal to or better than 2018 uh, based on their own self-identification about voting. And also we were up 25 points among 18 to 29 year olds, which is enough. I mean, it, that's a good number. It's not the greatest number, but it's not bad. And so, yes, you're right. If we have big youth performance over the next week, you know, we're going to have a very good midterm. And I think it's one of the reasons why the Biden White House ended with so many programmatic initiatives designed to speak to young people, right? We saw yeah. gun safety, we saw climate, we saw the student loan forgiveness, we saw the cannabis stuff. All that, I think, was an effort to have an older man create a greater connection with younger people, right? Um, and and I think you know we'll find out if it's gonna if it's been effective. Yeah, I'm gonna toss it over to Jordy in just a sec. But before I do, given all that we've talked about during this conversation, why do you think the media is so quick to go along with these narratives that Republicans dangle in front of them all the time? Yeah, I mean, look, this is we'll come back after the election and do a whole show on this. I think, but I, my quick answer is that 
I think a lot of people bought into the red wave narrative in the spring. And if it doesn't happen, they're going to be professionally embarrassed. And I think that's like, that's the bottom line. I mean, I think there's a lot of other reasons why, right? I, I, and I think that, um, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of media commentators, a lot of pollsters, a lot of people in our, you know, both in our family, frankly, and also in the media sort of believed this was going to be a bad midterm. And they want it to be a bad midterm for their professional advancement and their careers. And so every time there's anything that looks positive for the Republicans, it gets blown up. And and I can tell you, as somebody, as you guys know, I've been pounding away every day and talking to reporters. I mean, I used to be the spokesperson of the DNC. I've been doing this a long time. I have been selling all sorts of stuff to reporters in the last few months that they just don't bite because it doesn't fit the red wave narrative. Yeah. And and so I, I think we also I think we also have to acknowledge that they kind of out-hustled us in this a little bit, right? We got out-organized here, and and we don't, part of the reason you guys do what you do is you take the information war that we're in every day really seriously. I still think there are parts of our party that don't take this seriously enough and don't really understand the nature of the conflict that we're in with the other side. And I think we got, I think we, we underperformed a little bit in the communications front as a party this cycle. Simon, serious question here. Are, yeah. are Republicans even talking about voting? I mean, I see them memeing QAnon conspiracies and Photoshop Donald Trump with six-pack abs, but <laughs> are they organizing in that way? It's going to be a really interesting question. I mean, I, one of my favorite stories this cycle was that, you know, the Republicans are talking about all these Hispanic vote centers that they've built all around the country where are community centers where people come in and right. do whatever they're going to do. And I have a reporter who's in Nevada call me and say she went to the, the community center in Las Vegas four times and it was never open, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, look, traditionally they don't do GOTV the way that we do because they have, you know, their voters are more, um, regular voters. They have a higher percentage of regular routine routinized voters in their coalition than we do. We have to do more to turn out our, we have more voters, but they have more regular voters. We have more irregular voters, right? So, you know, I think that everyone thinks in this election that the Republican turnout is going to be very high. The question is what happens on our side. And, and I, and I think that that's why this early vote could be challenging some of the models that pollsters have that are assuming a significantly more Republican vote on election day. We didn't see that in the five house specials. We didn't see that in Kansas. And, you know, the real question now is will the anti-MAGA majority that showed up in such record numbers in the last two elections, will it show up again? And I remain optimistic based on the early vote data that it will. I love this phrase that you used earlier, get the grumpies off. I, I might need to, I might need to steal that. So we're only a handful of, of days away from these midterms now. There's, you know, there, there may be a lot to be distracted about. But what's your message to our listeners about this notion of, of staying focused down the home stretch and making sure that they get the grumpies off? Yeah, listen, there's going to have to be a big conversation after the election about the, the pessimism uh, that reigned over our family over the last year or so. I think something happened during the BBB fight last fall where we kind of got went fought with each other and there was sort of like a anger and frustration inside the family that we never really worked through, to be honest. And, and I think that my view is that the kind of frustration and anger, disappointment,
getting stuck. <laughs>